You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 71. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Clark. You know, I was, uh, I was talking to some people in a bar the other day, and they asked me what my latest podcast episode was about, and I said, uh, well, you know, I kind of flipped and flopped a little bit. And finally, I just I pounded the table and I said, it's about the fact that this is America. And apologies to my listeners outside the US. It's about that this is America and this is the internet and I should be allowed to watch any damn video I want. Now, I know that's not literally what I'm saying, but the sentiment sums it up perfectly. So sometimes you need to be with friends in a bar to make sense of this stuff or people you don't know in a bar. I don't know. Maybe I didn't know them. Um, I also realized that uh, it's it's tough to be against the new fascism and also against censorship by the mainstream culture and media and big tech companies all at the same time. And most uh, podcasters don't try to take both tacts in the same video, but uh, that's how I think. So uh, I guess we'll have to get used to it. Surprisingly, I didn't get anyone complaining to me through emails this time, so I'm just going to assume that you're all on board with everything that I'm saying until I hear otherwise. Uh, if you'd like me to hear otherwise, that's localmaxradio at gmail.com. And, uh, and I will get back to you. Um, I've further, I, I, since then, I've, I've heard further commentary on the New York Times article about YouTube that I spoke about in the last show, because, you know, I like to give my own take before seeing what others are saying. Uh, which, you know, sometimes I listen and I say, oh, that sounds better than what I said. But, you know, it's, it's, I, I like to give kind of a, a natural, you know, blind reaction. But what really struck me in the whole young man getting radicalized by YouTube story is that the particular case the New York Times chose to highlight was ultimately, <laughs> to, at the end of the day, it was just a dude who changed his mind, his opinions a few times from watching online video. I mean, it didn't, radicalize him in the sense of, you know, leading to violence or anything like that, um, even though that's the impression you might get from the, uh, uh, from, from the, from the headline. So I, I don't think I emphasize that enough. I w- there are, there've got to be examples of people actually getting radicalized through YouTube. So I don't know why they wouldn't choose something like that, but I guess there aren't any uh, particularly good examples. So anyway, um, today's interview is going to be a lot of fun. Uh, I went to NYU, the NYU Center for Data Science, to talk to my good friend Tassis about all things urban data science. That means we're talking about cities and travel and food, all the good things, and how the work of data scientists and engineers can improve our experience in all of these areas. For those of you who have been paying attention... I last spoke about urban data science in episode 49 with Daniele Curcia. That project was about classifying neighborhoods and you know, letting go of the 100% efficiency idea to give people a little more randomness and happiness in their lives. Today, we're going to take a more broad view of urban data science, anywhere from tools for taxi drivers, for analyzing real estate and gentrification, all the way up to the latest research on where to put green spaces and, and, and retail, as well as the you know, latest in augmented reality to improve the city experience. Now, Tassos Nulas is currently an assistant professor and faculty fellow at the NYU Center for Data Science. 
uh, here in New York City, where I caught up with him last week. He has been very active in the academic data science community over the last decade, authoring dozens of well-cited papers and participating in organizing conferences such as the Cambridge Workshop on Data Science, in which I also participated back in 2015. Cambridge University is, in fact, where he got his PhD. So let's bring up the conversation. Tassas Nulas, welcome to the show. Welcome to the Local Maximum. Um, thanks for having me here today, Max. Uh, it's a great pleasure to be at the Local Maximum. I think uh, that's the best uh, podcast name um, I got to encounter so far. So congratulations ah, for that. Thanks, Tass. Uh, yeah, it is. Thanks for inviting me here to the NYU Center for Data Science. Yeah. This, this place is pretty awesome. It is an awesome place. We are actually, uh, these days, one of the most renowned uh, centers for data science around the world. Uh, our master's course uh, is extremely popular. We have approximately 2,000 applications from all over the world um, for, from, for students. And um, essentially, we have to pick uh, the top 100 and 150 of them for each uh, year's cohort. So it's a very competitive uh, uh, course, and we have some of the best instructors you know, in the world on the subject. You know, what's crazy is when I went to NYU, I graduated in 2011, there, there wasn't even a data science master's. That, like, happened, that came up the next year. I mean, I basically put together my own data science master's within whatever I was doing, kind of. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I, 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 guess, um, I guess in 2011, it was actually the year uh, when actually data science was first introduced uh, in the industry setting. Yeah. So uh, data science was first introduced by uh, companies like uh, Facebook, Google, Foursquare, and the likes. Um, and essentially, it got adopted uh, also as an academic discipline of a very particular uh, nature, which we can discuss more if you want to. Yeah, and you said you have some of the best uh, professors and researchers. Obviously, there's Jan Lacun, who I've talked about on the program in episode 68. Uh, is there anyone else? Um, yes, yes. Uh, we have uh, Kyun Jun Cho, uh, yeah. who is one of the inventors of uh, uh, gated recurrent units with great applications in machine translation or speech recognition uh, and a good competitor to LSTMs. Uh, we have Sam Bowman, uh, who does uh, also NLP, and he organizes also the uh, text as data uh, seminar series at NYU every Thursday, and uh, whoever is interested in NLP can get in touch, and uh, and they can participate either as speaker or as, or, or as audience uh, in the series. And then we have uh, people who are doing math. Let us not forget that uh, NYU Data Science is part of the Courant Institute of Mathematical Sciences, uh, so on the topics of uh, maths, inference, representation, we are actually uh, very strong. All right. So we call your field urban data science. So w what's urban data science? How is it different from regular data science? Yeah, so I guess the way um, the term data science actually merged, um, and, and so did the term urban data science, and essentially... So data science, if uh, we can make a vague comparison with previous sort of like similar expertise, uh, uh, let's say, characterizations, uh, you had machine learning uh, scientists and so on. Right. So, so what's specific about data science is the domain of application uh, that is also uh, sort of like strongly incorporated in the practice of a data scientist. And so by urban data science, we mean data science, that data science applied in the domain of um, uh, urban systems, cities, uh, and you have things like transport, retail optimization, which is where do you place a shop, 
um, and basically understanding how cities function as systems. Um, and and so, so the term and the work of an urban data scientist is a sort of like, uh, let's say, uh, something like um, so what geographic information systems used to be. Uh, but let's say, let's call it 2.0, where much of the focus is on data rather than on just building software to be a use for urban uh, Wait, applications. So, so, so the GIS system, that was, um, when people say they were going into GIS, that's, that, was more, uh, that was more like learning the software? Or, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. Like, and what would that software do? So that software would do things such as uh, would allow uh, someone to visualize um, uh, information on a map create new maps uh, or do some sort of like predictive modeling in terms of like um, what would happen say uh, if uh, a small town would be built in a particular part of the world um, or part of the country um, you know how many people would travel there and so on so it, it would it would incorporate urban modeling um, of some sort uh, but then um, just to make the comparison and sort of like a distinction with urban data science, uh, that would be mainly on the volumes of data it would use. So geographic information systems were pretty much um, uh, systems that were presenting, um, let's say, um, different uh, data uh, in a cartographic context. Uh, yeah, in a map. In a map. Come on, yeah. cartographic? That's a big word, man. Yeah, what are you doing a, here? Yeah, I'm Greek, you know. <laughs> I have to use big, uh, fancy words. <laughs> okay. That's why we became famous. <laughs> um, yeah, so I could see where the overlap was between, you know, urban data science and, and Foursquare data. You know, Foursquare came on the scene in 2009, 2010, 2011. What, were you in urban data science when you first connected it with, with Foursquare data? How did that come together? And I know this isn't on my list of questions, but it just came to my sure, head. Sure, sure. And so. I think it's a very good question because uh, history is always good to mention. So uh, the way I got in touch with, uh, let's say, the Foursquare realm of data and, and work was um, back in 2010, I was beginning my PhD at the University of Cambridge at the Computer Lab, uh, which is the Computer Science Department of the University. And I had to find a topic to work on. And my, my boss, uh, let's call them boss, uh, my PhD advisor, in a more sort of like formal terms, uh, she told me, hey, Tassos, you know, you can work um, on various topics in areas that I'm interested in as an advisor, so I can support you. And this would be something related to mobility or mobile systems. So that's what my advisor, Cecilia Mascolo, has been doing, working on mobile technologies. So, so when you say mobility, is that like, is that travel or transportation or is that people moving, um, like demographics? Uh, what, is the, what do you mean by the study of mobility? There? So, uh, again, I think we are going into a new rabbit hole uh, here, which, <laughs> which, which is great. Yeah, yeah, because uh, first of all, I mean, mobility is uh, anything that moves uh, and can be studied uh, in this context, but obviously we don't talk about uh, sort of like particle movement here in physics. Right. Um, uh, we are talking about people moving in cities, and uh, of course you have different spatial scales that this mobility uh, oh, sort of process can emerge. Although there's, there's analogies made to physics, as we'll, we'll yes, see later. Yes, of course, and we will, yes. come, we will come to that. Okay. But obviously you can have people moving within a conference environment, say sort of like well-defined uh, sort of uh, urban structures, or you can have uh, people moving um, 
uh, within a city from neighborhood to neighborhood and uh, also people moving from city to city uh, in a country scale or between countries. And, yeah. and, and so mobility is like, it can really be um, human mobility modeling and sort of like as a, as a, as a uh, domain of study can really um, cover all these sort of like different scales. Uh, and of course, uh, as a PhD student, I had to focus somewhere and that's where I, I connected with Foursquare um, in particular. And, and if I may, uh, if I'm, I'm allowed to go a bit deeper into that, Go for it. Um, so uh, back in 2010, as I said, when I was looking for a PhD topic, uh, then it was the time that the first Foursquare check-in started to pop on, um, on Twitter. So essentially, Foursquare users were pushing their check-ins on Twitter. Yeah, that, that's what Twitter was back then. It wasn't everybody ripping each other's heads off. It was actually just people saying, you know, I was, I'm having breakfast and here's my food and I'm going to push my Foursquare check-in. Like for, for those of you who are very young, I remember when that's what Twitter used to be. It was a virgin territory yeah. being shaped by its users. Yeah. Um, so, and politics were not so much into it, which was actually nice in, in, in a way. Um, so, so when I saw this four square chickens popping on Twitter, I was like, that's a great source of data that can let us know where people go. It's public, so you can use it for research and share it with others. Um, although that has changed as well, um, and <laughs> I know that. Yeah, and, and, and also very, very critical. I think like I not only had information about where users go, uh, basically coming from all big cities around the world, but also you had information that had to do with place semantics. Uh, so the types of places that people go to, and then you have a view on the types of urban activities people perform at different corners of the city. And you have that with a temporal granularity of Twitter timestamps, which is per second. So as a PhD student started working on the topic, that sort of data was amazing. So essentially, we went hardcore in my research group trying to crawl data from Foursquare and Twitter. Oh, so you're the guys who did that. Yeah. Pretty much. Um, yeah, because I know there are a bunch of Twitter data sets uh, floating around from Foursquare, but I think yours is the main one. Yeah, I, I mean, we <laughs> never put that on the public domain, yeah. uh, but that's how we started collecting data. And back then, it was uh, more of an okay practice to, let's say, let's say, crawl websites, uh, yeah. whereas today you have uh, much more strict rules and uh, and things have changed. And uh, I guess that's why we organize the Future Cities Challenge, which we. I think yeah. we will talk about it later. Yeah, well, actually, we'll talk about it right now. The, the only other point I wanted to make in terms of mobility, one problem I've, not problem, but question I've been interested in when I was working in Foursquare and thinking about where can I apply recommendations in a, in a more interesting way was thinking about mobility within a, a public space that's like, you know, governed by an organization like a, a, a mall, which is very big now because in terms of marketing data, everyone wants to know how people move around in the mall. And then also like theme parks, I wanted to give recommendations of like what ride you should go on next and that sort of thing. So, um, yeah, I think that would fall under the yeah. category. Yeah, so, so I think the malls are a very interesting case. I actually had the chance a few years back to go to Thailand um, and work with a telecom provider uh, on, on a very interesting problem which we can discuss about. They want to open basically thousands of shops around the world, around Thailand, excuse me. And uh, they wanted to use essentially the telco data in order to decide where it's the best place to open a shop. And uh, part of the discussion was shopping malls. And in particular, in places like Thailand, you have gigantic shopping malls. They are really huge. Yeah. And so you can really have uh, focus studies on mobility within the mall scape. 
And then you can do things such as, you know, what are the best routes for people to cross within the mall to reach your product or shop or whatever. Mm. So you could try to sell, you could try to, you know, I'm sure they do a lot of research and trying to figure out where to go, but I'm sure a lot of it is also just um, based on what's available or, you know, common knowledge type situation. So having some data behind that would be great. Um, all right. So let's, uh, let's get into some of this stuff. Tell me about what's the futures, what's the future cities challenge? Mm-hmm. Uh, I see that some of my pals at Foursquare are involved. Right. So, yeah, um, going from the, the age of um, acceptable data crawling um, in the years of 2010 through 2012, uh, nowadays um, uh, scientists and researchers are looking for, uh, let's say, more well-defined channels for accessing um, these new forms of data. So, so you're going legitimate is what you're saying. Exactly. We, we, we're going, <laughs> Not that that was illegitimate, but yeah. But, but we, we're going formal and legit. And yeah. what uh, we want to do with the Future Cities Challenge dot uh, com, by the way, for those who want to check out the webpage. Yep. All of this will be linked on the show notes page, localmaxradio.com slash seventy one. If you're interested in any of the links for today. Right. So um, the challenge was really uh, a, a way to um, bring academics closer to Foursquare data. So academics were always interested in this uh, sort of like source of data because of its like power to answer very interesting questions. Um, and so with the challenge, essentially, we decided to make this data uh, accessible to uh, an audience of researchers. So Foursquare very kindly uh, prepared um an aggregate, uh, um, let's say, privacy-aware uh, mobility data set of approximately 100 million check-ins okay. uh, for a period of, I think, a two-year period in uh, 10 big cities around the world, cities like uh, Tokyo, New York, Los Angeles, and London. Um, and so the challenge was basically um, a platform for researchers to get access to that data, and uh, the process was very successful. We had something like 60 groups uh, of researchers from all corners of the world, Australia, uh, Japan, uh, Chiang Mai in Thailand, um, all the way to United States and places like uh, the UK and continental Europe. And basically, from those 60 groups that uh, participate in the challenge now, we are welcoming uh, the top 10 finalists um, at a special conference uh, uh, called NetMob to take place in Oxford this July. So, so what are they trying to do, these groups? They're trying to use this data for the purpose of designing future cities or making cities better, or uh, do they have a variety of different goals? Yeah, so uh, the goal was quite open, though we had a few sort of like uh, directives, as in sort of like topics of interest uh, to, let's say, encourage particular forms of engagement with the data and uh, basically... Uh, Analyzing this data for good uh, yeah. was... This is Foursquare for good, right? Yeah, this is Foursquare for good. I advertised it on this very program. Oh, fantastic. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it was a part of this initiative as well. Um, and actually, we will be running two sessions uh, at the conference uh, this July. So one of them will be Future Cities for Good, uh, where we will have things such as, um, you know, how to plant uh, trees intelligently in a, in a city, uh, using Foursquare data. So, okay, planting trees intelligently. Like, what would be, what would be the goal in terms of planting trees that they're trying to uh, optimize? Like, in terms of, are there going to be people walking by it? Yeah. Is it are there not enough trees in the area or something like that? Uh, exactly. So, yeah. maximize crowd exposure to uh, basically 
planted trees. Gotcha, um, gotcha. So I think that was the main idea of the paper. Um, and um, and by the way, all these papers will uh, come online sometime in July in a special book uh, uh, called Future Cities Book, which we will be announcing on uh, media such as Twitter. Cool. Uh, and yeah, I mean, people went uh, basically uh, through different directions in terms of like using the data for uh, um, this sort of like, uh, let's say, cities for good purposes. So uh, another paper is like investigating the relationship between the presence of uh, food places uh, and the emergence of uh, new food places at, uh, at different urban neighborhoods with uh, house prices there. Okay. Uh, so... So you can see how essentially. Um, so they'll tell me which type of restaurant I should open if I want the um, if I want the values to go up or down, uh-huh. or just to study, or maybe if I'm investing in real estate, I can use that. Yeah. So I, I guess I guess yeah. I, I wouldn't recommend that you open a restaurant in order to drive <laughs> house prices <laughs> up. Um, if uh, only I sell more sushi, <laughs> uh, I could just get this thing sold at the price of... No, I don't think that's... Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> you never know, you never know. Uh, but yeah, definitely these sort of like, uh, let's say, uh, data explorations in the urban domain. I mean, the, the, the interesting thing, thing about cities is like within the same territory, you have multiple forms of data and complex processes taking place. So sometimes you can find, let's say, correlations... Uh, between things that are not immediately sort of like um, associated based on our sort of like cultural understanding of the urban right. world. The, the famous one, which I think is from Walmart, is like the, was it the diapers and beer thing? I don't know. Have you heard of that one? No. Oh, there was something where there was a, uh, there was a correlation between those two. I got to look that up. But that, anyway, that's like the canonical example yeah, of like and, unexpected correlation. And by the way, I think now we're probing to something like, let's say, to the next frontier of urban studies, which is we really need to work uh, uh, more on causal relationships between oh, yeah. things that happen. Uh, and of course, new data would allow for new types of studies. Uh, but at least you can do things that says, you know, you can observe things over time and then right. you can... So, so going back to the, the example of food, like it could be that the food is causing the neighborhood prices to go up, but it could be that the neighborhood prices going up is causing the better food to come in. Um, or it could be another thing causing both. Yeah. So feedback uh, loops uh, do emerge uh, yeah. in these types of systems. Um, there was, um, I think, um, this study uh, back in 2013 associating the presence of uh, chicken chicken fast food places in London with um, gentrification as well. Okay. Uh, so where you get a lot of chicken shops, you get um, high uh, sort of like uh, rates of increase in house prices and so on. So it's the chicken. Uh, or maybe not. Yeah, we can, we can blame the chicken, definitely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, people would blame the chicken, but uh, causal relationships, again, very complicated. Yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I wouldn't put my hand into fire, as we say, uh, in a Greek uh, sort of like uh, uh, language about yeah. sort of like making these associations sort of very pronounced. Uh, but uh, they're a point of like open study for the future. Yeah. All right. So uh, you've done some work in applying these concepts to taxis, which, you know, hey, that's big business these days, even, even you know, with Uber, even though their IPO maybe didn't go as well. Huge company, huge business that, that, that grew. Uh, that's got to be one of the biggest companies in the last um, 10 years. Uber, Lyft, all, all, and now with the focus on self-driving 
taxis with Waymo. Um, actually, I used one of your apps for a while that told me whether it was cheaper to take an Uber or a yellow cab. So uh, thanks. Yeah, so you saved me a few bucks. Yeah. So uh, thanks. I'm very glad we did. Yeah. So so that was Open Street Cab. Yeah, uh, yeah. So that's a project we launched back in 2000. Um, I think 15 it was when it first hit the market. And it was really the days of aggressive search pricing. Yeah. Um, so and and essentially at that at that point, uh, let's say uh, Uber was uh, introducing a new product in the market. Uh, but the trouble for consumers was that essentially, uh, or urban travelers uh, in this context, was that they didn't know uh, in advance how much they would pay. Um, and of course, they could calculate things such as you know taking into account the search pricing multiplier. But we all know that. Um, uh, even these simple cal- calculations in the context like, of everyday use of apps and so on are very hard to be made by users. So what we thought with OpenStreetCab is like, hey, you know, we have things like a Sky Scanner or Google Flights for people to search for uh, uh, prices um, uh, in aviation that change based on demand and supply and these sort of like uh, rules. Uh, and Uber is introducing a new pricing model that is different to the tar- tariff-based um, system that yellow cabs uh, have been using for decades now. So why don't we build an app that actually uh, makes head-to-head comparisons of the different uh, taxi companies? And at that time, that was something very novel. So, I mean, that's something that now Google does, although they, didn't do, they don't do yellow cabs. Uh, and we were lucky to have our work covered uh, in the media. And I think at some point we were running uh, this app with approximately 5,000 uh, users in that's New good. York City alone. Yeah, New York City. That's yeah, good. Which is, you know, quite an achievement for an academic project, basically. Yeah. Did, uh, is that still around OpenStreetCab? Unfortunately not. Uh, there are several uh, interesting things that happened. And, um, and you know, we, we can... Can we talk about that? Yes, that... yes. Okay, we, can, we can talk about that. So uh, one problem was that um, Uber seemed not to really enjoy OpenStreetCab. Yeah. And I'm, it's, it's interesting because I would think the yellow cabs wouldn't be too happy either. Uh Yes, but in the case of the yellow cabs, we actually uh, were a good sort of like voice because uh, Uber was actually at that time um, supporting the idea that they were cheaper than the yellow cabs and actually they were advertising themselves uh, as being sad. Oh, I see. So they were like, nope, sometimes we're cheaper. Uh, they were actually, we are cheaper than the yellow cabs and yeah. I have the advertisement. Right, right. But, the, uh, but the yellow cabs could take your app and be like, hey... We're cheaper now. I mean, that's what our research yeah. showed, actually, that on average, yellow cabs were cheaper by uh, $2 on average hmm. uh, in New York City. So if you would take into account things such as search pricing and so on, and of course, uh, that would be uh, sort of like the difference would be particular to the time of the day, uh, day of the week, and uh, the journey you're taking. So that's why the app was useful, because then you could personalize its response to the user, and then the user could decide what's best to take. Uh, and also then the app was covered in the media and also the research. And uh, for the Yellow Cup community, that was a positive sort of like response to what uh, basically Uber was uh, suggesting. Um, so we're very happy to see that. Uh, but obviously the app, and to answer your question, was reliant to uh, the API of Uber. And the API, API of Uber uh, involved the terms and conditions that basically would not allow us to use this API for uh, reasons of um, you know that have to do with competition with Uber. Yeah. So that was a tricky part. Uh, you know, we are living in a sort of like uh, free, uh, transparent market. 
uh, and consumers should have access to prices, right? And I think companies should make that easier for them. Yeah, it would be nice if they could be confident, like, hey, we have a low price. Or even if, hey, in some cases, we don't have the lowest price, but we're a better product, so maybe people want to go with us anyway, rather than just saying, hey, we're, we're not going to let you uh, see the prices. That's uh, disappointing, to yeah, say the least. Exactly. And, 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 but, but I think, you know, for us, even if the app is not online at the moment, um, we actually made a point and we uh, sort of like opened this sort of like discussion, urban transport and transparency. And, you know, this was followed by the media. There was a, uh, a discussion in the public domain. I've been many conferences talking about this in panels and so on. Uh, so, and, you know, today you have at least Google Maps having, comparing, let's say, Uber and Lyft. Yeah, and I'm sure. Other companies. And, uh, and so it's the practice of incorporating transparency for journeys in the urban domain has been adopted, and I think it will get better. Yeah, there, there might be a way, I mean, it would be a complicated you know, project, you'd need a big budget for it, but there might be a way to like estimate what the Uber charge would be um, without actually having access to their API somehow, knowing what the conditions are, and, but you'd have to almost reverse engineer their algorithm, which yes. is going to be changing all the time, it's almost like, yeah. Exactly, and you know, this is like an arms race, and yeah. actually, you know, uh, at that time, you know, I, I, I also had the chance to interview with Uber and, uh, you know, they, they, they had a team uh, called, I think, MI6, which is like the British intelligence services. I, isn't that the one in uh, James Bond? Yeah. Yeah, uh, but, uh, but it's real. Yeah, <laughs> but it, I only it, know it. It, it. it was a team in Uber. I don't yeah, know if it still MI6. exists, but they were doing all the search pricing uh, magic. Yeah. So, you know, trying to reverse engineer a black box. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's like, even from a business perspective, especially from a business perspective, it's not a great idea. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. So uh, you're still doing some work with uh, taxis, right? Yeah. So, so what's, the, what's the future for taxis with regard to urban data science, or at least with regard to your work in it? Right. So, so two years ago, almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, to be more exact, um, I found myself um, uh, in a taxi in the UK, uh, in Cambridge. I was uh, going somewhere. And, um, you know, I had a chat with a taxi driver and uh, I, I was talking a bit about how is the taxi business and so on. And I told him about OpenStreetCab, which we just discussed. And the taxi driver was like, oh, hey, you're building apps. You know, the taxi driver also needs an app. And so uh, what uh, started as a conversation became actually a, a real world uh, application and service. Uh, and what we have built actually is like an intelligence platform for uh, traditional yellow cab like taxi communities. Uh, and so, you know, to help your audience understand things better, uh, because I guess it's rather abstract, you know, what does it mean intelligence for taxi drivers? Uh, let us take the example where um, at the moment when a taxi driver goes to JFK airport, they might queue anywhere uh, from one to five hours to pick up a customer. That's a long time to wait for an hour to pick someone up at JFK. Exactly. So it's a long queue there, and that's also a, a situation that is rather un unpredictable for the taxi driver. So essentially what we're trying to do with the new project called NavCab, people can check it out at nav.cab, uh, we're trying to essentially build a platform uh, that has a front-facing app, uh, basically, that is used by taxi drivers to share data between each other. And they, they can essentially um, track each other within the city. They can see how many taxis are in different neighborhoods, how many pickups take place, and essentially make more informed decisions about how they use the time while they're uh, in the taxi. 
that little bit of extra efficiency goes a long way. I mean, I've, um, <laughs> I've, uh, I've, you know, I, I do the, my monthly budgeting and I check my bills. I'm always surprised at how much I'm spending on transportation and how frustrating transportation can be. So I feel like that should be a big area of, of research and, and like business opportunities going forward because everybody needs transportation. Nobody's happy. Everyone's spending too much money. Uh, yeah, <laughs> everyone's yeah. waiting too long. Yeah, I mean, transportation is... Uh, I think there are three big things in in uh, in a city. So one is uh, where people live, the other is where people eat, and the third is uh, where people move. And uh, so transportation has been traditionally a big part of uh, city life. Um, and so uh, yeah, oh, where, where they work too, right? Or is that? Did you mention where they work? Where they live? Where they work? Yeah, I guess yeah. I guess sometimes you work at places that they serve food as yeah, well. Yeah. Oh, uh, right, right, right. Yeah, but I guess uh, yeah, all, always, always comes. Back so I guess food. that's the fourth dimension <laughs> where people work. Yeah. All right. Cool. Um, all right. So we are heading to Ukraine in a little over a month, right? Uh, you're teaching a course there on urban data science. I'm going to be teaching a course there. Who knows? Maybe we could do some podcast episodes there. I don't know. Uh, I don't know what. What? Well, we'll go there and we'll feel it out. And we'll yeah, see yeah, exactly. Maybe it. we can run one in, um, let's say, in a Slavic language uh, for the local. Uh, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so live well, translation does not exist yet. Oh, yeah, no. no. But uh, hopefully, I can find some cool people to interview there. But I read your course notes. I'm interested in, uh, hopefully, I'll be just getting in as your course starts, so I, I'll miss maybe the beginning of it, but I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, listening to some of your course in urban data science. And I noticed in the notes you mentioned two concepts that I was not familiar with. And I kind of like, on, on this show, in the local maximum, as I suggest, the local maximum is one of them. We have these concepts, these high-level concepts, and I want people to have an idea of what those concepts are so they kind of apply it um, without getting into the math and the theory and all that. So the first one uh, is central place theory. So what is central place theory? Right. So um, let us maybe make a parenthesis and, and uh, sort of like contextualize things a bit in terms of like urban theories in general. Uh, okay. So again, going a bit historic, so obviously urbanization intensified and emerged as sort of like as a grand process um, in human activity on the planet um, in the 20th century. And so um, scientists, um, philosophers, um, also people coming from humanities, uh, like sociologists and so on, got very interested in, the, in terms of like, what is a city? How does it grow? Um, how does it change over time? What makes a city uh, good to live? What is a successful city? And so on. It was yeah. an interdisciplinary sort of like field where you had geographers, uh, planners, uh, urban sociologists, uh, these days, of course, computer scientists. So central place theory was one of the theories that was actually trying to capture uh, sort of like an explain in geometric terms how uh, settlements emerge in um, in, in territories. So right. uh, you have one place being built somewhere. How do new places emerge around it? Right, right. It's sort of like when I was like eight and I would see the uh, map of the U.S., I always kind of assumed that everyone was equally likely to live 
anywhere in that space. But then when you get older, you realize, oh, there's actually like a power law distribution where most people are in the cities and then fewer people outside. And so I guess the question you're trying to answer is, where do these cities pop up? And when do they shrink? When do they grow? You know, exactly. And, you know, and, and I, I guess um, one theory that you could say historically is they all pop up around water or other natural resources. Yeah, reverse. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but so what is the... Um, does central place theory have anything to say about it or is it just the broad, um, the broad idea of... All the, all the causes of growth in urban areas. So uh, without getting into the sort of like math details of it, um, let's say we can explain it uh, real quick. Center place theory suggests that, uh, let's say, um, it, it tries essentially to predict the uh, distribution of uh, city or town sizes around the big city. Okay, okay. So it's so like... So you have a big city uh, somewhere... What would be the expected uh, size of other uh, small towns? Usually, you have around like satellite towns that are around that big right. city. Or even um, in New York City, here we have kind of satellite cities nearby that maybe out in the Midwest would be considered the main city on its own, um, and then they all have satellite towns around them. Yeah, so uh, it's, so. it's like it's like a fractal process, and actually. Yeah. Fractal geometry uh, became really popular in the 90s about describing, uh, let's say, the geometric shapes and uh, properties of uh, cities as those represented in terms of like settlement or population distributions. That's really cool. Um, so Fractal Cities is a very cool book uh, from 1991, I think, um, from a professor uh, in, uh, in the UK called Mike Batty, which was one of the pioneers in urban studies. Um, so it's online, it's uh, free to get, and it's a fun read uh, if you want to get a bit into how mathematical geometry uh, has been used to understand cities. Um, Very cool. We haven't done a show on fractal, on fractal theory, chaos theory, fractal geometry yet. I think that would be a good uh, topic for an episode here. Um, because, well, one of the things I remember so vividly uh, as an undergrad when I was at Yale is I had a 15-minute conversation with uh, Benoit Mandelbrot. And uh, I, wish I, I, I wish I knew then what I know now because I would have asked him so many more questions and I, he would have um, seen I was so much more into it then. But I was like, I was into it then, but I didn't really recognize why as much. Yeah. I was 19. What do you want? I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> uh, uh, it must be sort of like an exciting moment of meeting uh, Benoit. Yeah. I mean, well, I was excited about it. Nobody, I, nobody else seemed to care. Like, I remember I told everyone at the time and like all the humanities majors and the poli economists were like, well, who? And I'm like, what? And I'm like, <laughs> I mean, it's incredible because fractals are everywhere and yeah. they're so ancient, yet uh, sort of like the mathematical theory of fractals only emerged only a few decades back. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, and I think that one of the reasons that they were sort of like preferred for urban growth description uh, and urban studies was the fact that uh, essentially... Um, one can see fractal geometry as a sort of like as a fluid type of geometry uh, where uh, sort of like uh, rules are bent and things that are not very regular in terms of like classical geometry, like uh, shapes and so on, uh, can be applied. 
And, you know, cities have a sort of like a certain properties uh, that are sort of like um, have characteristic shapes and patterns, but also they're very regular. Yeah, I mean, it's almost a way to describe the natural world that you need like um, platonic geometry. I don't know if that's the right term for it, but like the geometry of like, hey, this is a square, this is a circle, because there are things that are roughly squares and circles in the, in the natural world and you can understand them. But if you really want to understand why you get all these weird shapes and patterns and stuff, you really have to dive into that, that, uh, that, that fractal view of the world, I think. And I think... Um, Mandelbrot and others were originally looking at finance and, and as well. Like, you know, stock market doesn't go in a straight line. Everyone knows that. <laughs> and nobody can predict it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Except, uh, yeah, well. Yeah, I was thinking it, the yeah. other day that actually maybe financial planners are a bit like psychics, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they'll be seen as like the alchemists of the, um, uh, you know, the 14th century. I don't know what it was. <laughs> um, well, economists, I'm, too. Yeah. Um, okay. So uh, the second one is Riley's Law of Retail Gravitation. So this is interesting. I don't know what it is, but I see it's, it's involved in retail. So it's, it's shopping, but gravitation. So it's also physics. So uh, what is that? Yeah. So uh, I guess going back a bit to the discussion about, you know, optimizing retail store placement and, you know, thinking about uh, sort of like... Um, models inspired from physics applied in the urban domain. Um, Essentially, the theory of, uh, let's say, gravitational or gravitational, uh, whatever word you prefer, attraction, uh, became quite popular um, uh, in sort of like in transport studies in particular, but also in retail planning. And what we mean by retail planning or retail optimization in this context is where do I place a shop? Yeah. Uh, Where do I place a shop uh, with respect to where people live? Or uh, where do I place a shop with respect to where people are actually active during daytime, right? Yeah. Um, so even though as far as back in the 60s, uh, you know, big, so, so, set, uh, say, car retailers like BMW uh, and so on were, you know, they had to decide where in the country they should place their shops. I'm referring to BMW because I know... Uh, it's a case where actually they had a study back in the 60s. So it's a UK. car shop. So it's, it's going to be, you need a big space. It's not like a dive bar. But yes, go yeah, on. Yeah, and, 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 you, need, <laughs> and you, need, you need a spot where yeah. it will sort of like be, become visible to passers by. The right people who would be, you know, the only, there are only certain places where you see car shops here in Manhattan, right? You, there's one like near Wall Street, and I think there's one like near Times Square where, where they know like everyone's going to see it, things like that. Yeah, yeah. So, and there, there's several. You know, like you, you don't want to have a lot of car shops. Like you know, out in, in the suburbs, you pass these huge car lots because uh, you know land is cheap out there. Yeah, and and so there's several sort of like theories about what makes a location successful, and you know, so you can think about. Um, so there is an interesting one is like uh, the idea of having, let's say, uh, you know, like think about places like Chinatown. You have a lot of Chinese restaurants. Right. So essentially having clusters uh, of uh, shops or retailers nice. of the same it, it type. It me hungry. I want to go back to Chinatown oh, now. Yeah. We <laughs> Maybe we can try it afterwards. Why not? <laughs> um, but yeah, like, so, right, so you, you have this sort of like lines of shops of the same type being right. in the same location. And that's yeah. counterintuitive from the competition point of view. Why would you open something somewhere 
uh, where there are people selling the same thing, you know, then competition would eat you. You'd think that there's there's competition there. You want to be differentiated. Why would you go there where there's going to be competition? Exactly. Uh, but then, uh, besides competition, there is also cooperation between retailers. And collectively, they form a sort of like, this sort of like similar identity scapes within uh, urban sort of like areas. And, and so people can identify and they know Chinatown is a place where I can go eat Chinese food. Right. So it's almost like even though they don't advertise directly, it almost like the word gets gets out. Uh, that Exactly. Yeah. So everybody so, so if I say I want to go down to Chinatown, sometimes I have a place in mind. Sometimes, no, let's just walk around and find some Chinese food. Exactly. Yeah. And then this is when you can actually visualize people spreading around the city like particles, like opportunistically encountering different shops. Uh, and and so this is so so these uh, laws and theories that emerged uh, to explain things like transport, um, appropriateness of retail locations for opening a shop, a shop, and so on, uh, are essentially trying to um, um, formalize intuitions and observations made by scientists. Uh, um, in terms of like um, solving problems uh, in these domains. Cool, cool. Uh, and so, is it related to the law of gravity at all, or is it just sort of a, an analogy that they use when, when it's uh, the law of retail gravitation? It's related like, to the law of gravity. So it's like uh, the the, um, the the law of gravity is the product of the masses divided by the square of the distance is there some like square distance idea exactly so a square distance idea uh, and so what is the metaphor in an urban environment there can be a few variations of those but i'll give you the most uh, common one okay uh so you know if you want to see if two areas say will interact in the city uh of course you have to take into account how far they are uh between one another so the further one area is from the other the less likely it is that they will interact but then, you know, when it comes to mass, you know, what do we mean by mass in an urban environment? And there you can use things such as local population sizes. So mm-hmm. the mass of a neighborhood would be the number of people who reside there. And so two neighborhoods, even though they are far, they might be more likely to interact if, if they are actually having large population sizes. I see. So, it, right. So... You know, the, the attractiveness of Chinatown versus the attractiveness of a single, you know, mediocre Chinese restaurant in, out in the suburbs. Well, some of them are really good because they usually give you a lot of food. But that's another metaphor when, you, when it comes to mass, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah. But, uh, um, yeah, you could imagine traveling far, farther um, to go to Chinatown uh, than, like, I'm not going to go... Six towns over. Well, I don't know if the Chinese food was really good. I would, but uh, yeah, I, 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 I thought you were going to this uh, faraway pizza place in Brooklyn uh, from time to time. I did Defara Defara's Pizza. I go there all the time. Yeah, and yeah. it's far, right? It's far, but it's it's really really good. Right. So like I guess uh, another form of uh, urban uh, attractiveness there. Yeah. So so it has a big mass, even though it's only a single shop. All right. Uh, cool. Okay. So. Uh, let's see what else we have here. Um, oh, you're working on an augmented reality project, I see. Yeah, projects never end. Um, <laughs> so, um, back in October, we had uh, an on-site visit by the Wikimedia Foundation uh, here in New York University. Um, and um, at that point, I-, I had some interaction with some of the research scientists there, and we thought... 
how cool would it be to have um, essentially uh, a view of Wikipedia that is like cartographic, going back to the long word of cartography. Yeah. And uh, essentially, much of Wikipedia content is geotagged. Uh, much of the things that are shown on Wikipedia, museums, statues, uh, historic events, they, they tend to be associated with a geography. So that's when we uh, started a little project called Wiki Atlas. And so what Wiki Atlas is basically uh, a platform for visualizing Wikipedia data on a map. And it's an interactive platform that allows, allows people to explore Wikipedia articles uh, say, um, uh, as they're presented within geographic areas. So you match knowledge with geographic context. Um, and, and, and so we were wondering where does the Atlas go? And we currently have two lines of, um, of growing the project. And one of them was to um, like uh, build an interactive platform that could be used by educators. So you can imagine that you're in a history class and you want to uh, help... Um, kids uh, uh, basically uh, learn better uh, certain historical facts. And so what the Atlas would do there is would allow you, the teacher, to share sort of like a more immediate uh, sort of like um, uh, platform for kids to reach at and learn about uh, things such as, you know, important historic events that took place in their towns or important historical sites that exist in their towns. So that's the one line of research we are building uh, with um, uh, Wiki Atlas. And the other, you know, coming back to your question on AR, uh, we are actually building a, a mobile app that essentially would allow you to move around the city and um, render uh, imagery uh, through your phone's camera and then be able to identify areas or spots in the city where geotagged Wikipedia articles exist. And a bit like Pokemon Go, you would be able to interact with them, learn more about specific sites. And ex- so, so it'd be good for, for travelers and people interested in history who are walking around. Exactly. Yeah. That's what we want to do. Um, so imagine you walk around the city. Many times you tend to miss uh, very important uh, buildings or things that happen in that city just because, yeah. you know, it's not handy to just, you know, take. Even your- here, especially here in New York City. Yeah, you know, there's because that. it's so dense. Actually, Wiki yeah. Atlas, um, and actually, you can go to wiki-atlas.org and explore any city you want around the world. It's a global sort of like uh, rich project, and New York City is one of the densest environments in terms of uh, Wikipedia articles. Yes, yeah. it's amazing how these ideas. Uh, did I ever show you my stickymap.com project from yes, back in? Uh, yeah, yeah, was something about house prices? No, or? no, no, no. no. Okay. This was. Um, my senior project at Yale, so I, I literally started it in 2005, and it was people just posting random um, um, icons on a map with, like, information on what that place is, and, and uh, you know, you could, there's a kind of a wiki for a description, and um, you could move the markers around. And, you know, we got a lot of users, we got a lot of spam, we got a lot of... But it was fun. But it's amazing how, like, this was... Um, started several years before Foursquare came out, before mobile. And so it's, it's amazing to me. I wasn't really sure what I was doing back then, but it's amazing to me how these ideas keep coming back. And at the same time, there was another similar site that came up called Wikimapia. And they were, they were not integrating directly with Wikipedia, but what they would do is they would have people um, make, uh, instead of like icons, points to the map, they'd actually have people make shapes 
And right. it was really nice. Even in like 2008, 2009, there were like little shapes and you can um, hover over the shapes and then each one had a little, you know, wiki associated with it. So they were hoping that people would fill it out Wikipedia style. And I think... Uh, I think they had to shut down at some point. I think it, it, it like, you know, these things, you know, people, they, they, like, sticking out, people kind of have to move on. They they run out of funding. But um, it's it's really cool to see these ideas get resurfaced, which yes. means they weren't just one-time things that were bad ideas. Yes. They were actually, yes. we were onto something. Yeah, and I think as AR technology improves, as it's becoming more popular, I think we will see a sort of like uh, big lines of innovation emerging in that space. I think things like Pokemon Go were just, um, let's say, uh, you know, one of the first big success stories on the in, in this sort of like domain. Uh, I think we will see more of that, and I think that's what exi- what is exciting about uh, this area of let's say urban data science. Um, let's say um, the new geographic uh, information systems era, and now you have things like AI, uh, you have things like AR, um, and I think what is exciting about it is like people keep searching about solutions in that space, and occasionally certain things become big, but it's it's really like a treacherous environment, and I think we will see a lot of innovation emerging in this space in the next years, and who knows, you might be the next one to innovate something. Well, yeah, I, I'm really excited about AR and about you know location data. Um, I always seem to come end up coming back to it, no matter what I try to do. Uh, so, um, yeah, I, uh, I I hope that um, you know, hey, maybe I'll do something with it. Maybe someone in this audience exactly. has a really great idea for augmented reality. <laughs> yes, yes. Okay. Um, so before we we head out. Um, what is what are you looking forward to most about our trip to Lviv, Ukraine? Right. So uh, it's it's gonna be my third year in Ukraine. Uh, I love. Shit, I've never been there before. Yeah, I mean, I I mean, it's my third year in a row in this summer school. I've been five times in yeah. Ukraine, and um, I think it's an exciting place from um, the point of view of people. Uh, so, you know, it's it's a different culture to, you know, of course, the U.S. in some sense. Uh, but it's like it's a, an interesting sort of like overlap between Eastern Oriental, uh, let's say Slavic uh, sort of like uh, influences and also uh, continental European influences. Uh, the city we are going in particular, Lviv, uh, it's close to the border with Poland. And actually, it used to be part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So a lot of the food and great architecture that the city enjoys are influenced by the sort of like their relationship with this sort of like very successful, short-lived, but very successful empire in the heart of Europe in the previous century. So cool. So, uh, but you didn't answer. What what are you looking forward to most? Ah, yeah. I I think I implicitly answered to that. I think uh, fun times uh, with very good food, uh, moderate drinking, uh, and also interactions on the educational realm because we are actually going there for summer school and uh, students are great. Students are really enthusiastic, interacting with new professors and so on. Awesome. Uh, the lineup of uh, professors and uh, lecturers who appear at school are usually very good. Uh, people from companies like Google um, and now it's going to be um, uh, also New York University and uh, I guess Foursquare. 
in a in a direct or less direct way. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I always be you know I always teach uh, students something uh, where they get to analyze uh, Foursquare data, and so yeah, I, uh, in some sense, Foursquare is being represented in the school um, uh, in the last uh, three years as well. All right, so. Before we wrap up, and that's what I wanted to hear, by the way, uh, before we wrap up, uh, any final thoughts on what we discussed today and where should people go if they want to learn more? Yeah, I think uh, we have covered a wide uh, variety of topics. I think we also mentioned um, some of the links for the various projects that were mentioned. Yeah, I'll, I'll you, post you, them up. Yeah. yeah, you have a central uh, sort of like point where people can get there. Localmaxradio.com slash 71 for the show notes. 71. It's a yeah. great number. Yeah. And I think it's Friday evening almost. No, Friday late afternoon. But, you know, Friday starts early sometimes. So people should go out and have fun. And uh, yeah. hopefully they will get to well, this is, this is actually well. This is coming out uh, Monday night. Monday night. Yeah, yeah. That's a good day. But uh, they'll, they'll be able to listen to it during the week, and then, uh, then they can have fun the next Friday. Or during the week. Anyway, it's 4.20. <laughs> we better get going. Yeah, okay, great. Uh, Toss, thanks for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be uh, here with the pantheon of other great uh, speakers you had. Uh, it's a pleasure to uh, build this metaphysical, uh, metaphysical connection with your audience. Uh, I hope we get a lot of views and become super popular on Twitter, which we will, no doubts. Awesome. Yeah, I'm sure we will. Take care. Bye. All right. Just one correction on that. Wikimapia, I think it's wikimapia.com, is, is in fact, it is still around. So, yeah, it turns out that they've survived all these years. And I look forward to, you know, diving more deeply into what they built because that's interesting. That's a long time. I also keep stickymap.com around, uh, too, for historical reasons. So next week, we return with another co-hosted show, I hope, and uh, following that, a conversation with Talk Python to Me host Michael Kennedy. So keep checking those podcatchers every week for new uh, local maximum as uh, we'll come out with a new episode every week. Have a great week, everyone. That's the show. Remember to check out the website at localmaxradio.com if you want to contact me, the host, or ask a question that I can answer on the show, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. This show is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and more. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe to The Local Maximum on one of these platforms and to follow my Twitter account at Max Sklar. Have a great week. Feel the power.